Praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, as we open your holy word, I ask that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Fill my life with your Holy Spirit's presence and power. Speak to me, through me, and for me. I promise you, Lord, I will always give you the honor, the glory, and the praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. I would like to thank Dr. Luxton, as well as the faculty and staff of this great institution, for the honor and privilege to, that you have bestowed upon me and the privilege to be just here with you today. Most of all, I thank my Lord and Savior for his love, grace, and mercy. Andrews University holds a special place in our hearts. My wife, Linda, and I started our marriage here at Andrews in Garland B-10. In 1976, 45 years ago. And as two young people fresh out of their teenage years, we had no idea how God was going to use us and where he would take us. I'm so grateful to God for my wife, Linda. I live with a woman I am in awe of. She is a godly woman. Not long ago, we were going through TSA at the airport security. And the TSA agent pulled my wife to the side and said, excuse me, ma'am, do you have something sharp in your luggage? She said, I don't think so. He said, please come with me. And he pulled her aside and he opened up her bag and the first thing that came out was a Bible. And my wife said, oh, I did forget. The Lord said his word is sharper. than a two-edged sword. <laughs> but now after preaching thousands of sermons and singing thousands of songs on every inhabited continent, what God has allowed me to do and where he has allowed me to go, it is more than we have ever dreamed. Perhaps one of the most exciting things God has allowed me to do began 20 years after leaving Andrews, you heard Dr. Luxton mention it in her introduction, God allowed me to start the first of its kind, an after-school tutoring, mentoring ministry to children whose parents are in prison and children falling behind in school. It is called the U.S. Dream Academy. I did not know before I started this work that one of every three African-American males between the ages of 18 and 30 in the United States of America are today in prison or supervised by the court system of the United States of America. One of every three. I did not know by the age of 30, 60% 
of all black boys in the United States of America who do not graduate from high school will have spent time in prison by the age of 30. 60% of all black boys in America who don't graduate from high school by the age of 30 will have spent time in prison. And so in the name of Christ, we started a tutoring, mentoring, and character building program, a ministry to thousands of some of the most vulnerable young people in America. And throughout those years, God has used miracle after miracle to sustain us in this transformational ministry. Now, you have a problem today, and that is, I've been told that since this is the second service, I can take my time. So I'm going to give you a little more than they got at the first service. But God has used miracle after miracle to sustain this ministry. I'll give you one of those miracles that I didn't share earlier. Forty years ago, I was singing in Baltimore, Maryland, and I came down off the platform. I felt a tap on my shoulder. Forty years ago, this young lady said, excuse me, sir, I just heard you sing, and I feel like I can talk to you. Do you have time to talk to me? I said, sure. So she came by our home, and we talked together and prayed together. And after praying with her, I said, you know, before you go, I don't know why, but God has impressed me to tell you he's going to bless you and give you an opportunity to speak to millions of people. She said, you really think God would do that for me? That young lady was Oprah Winfrey. And that's how we met 40 years ago. And she has been the single most generous benefactor to keep our ministry alive. 2008 was a tough fundraising year. The economy collapsed and uh, we were struggling. We have a a dinner each year. We raise about a million dollars at our fundraising dinner. This year I set the goal to raise at 1.3 million because we needed every penny of it. And I was praying. Fundraising will teach you how to pray. (laughs) And I was praying and Seven days before the dinner, I'm praying. Two days later, I got a call from Oprah Winfrey's assistant saying, Miss Winfrey just boarded her jet to go to South Africa to see her school for girls that she built there. And I had the honor of speaking and singing at the opening of her school for girls there. And she left a FedEx package to send to you. Where should I send it? I said, well, send it to the corporate office in Maryland. She said, oh, there's a, a, a special way she really wants you to open it. I said, well, then send it to my home. I got home. My wife handed me this beautifully wrapped box. There was a handwritten note from her thanking me for my ministry in her life, my prophetic words of wisdom all those years ago. And I saw an envelope. And when I opened it up, she had put in a check for $1.2 million. But behind that envelope, I saw another envelope peek out. It was dated for the next year, January 1, the next year. I opened it up, it had another check for $1.2 million. And behind that envelope was another envelope. And I opened it up, it had another check for $1.3 million. She she sent about $4 million in three envelopes. And then she called me from South Africa. She, She said, did you get it? I said, oh, thank you so much, you know. And then she emailed me and she said, you know, I love giving. And I love making it fun. 
She said, I considered sending you a FedEx envelope three days in succession. So Monday you'll get the first check and be surprised and (laughs) Tuesday the second and Wednesday the third. She said, but I figured by the fourth day you'd be chasing the FedEx man down. So... But God has been so faithful, he has made it possible. And may, there may be someone listening today who the Lord will speak to your heart that you would like to leave a legacy of helping these children. Uh, I spent a lot of my life begging with dignity. <laughs> For more than 20 years, our mentoring, tutoring ministry has been in person. The COVID pandemic came along and challenged us to do mentoring virtually and online. And we've learned so much. Can I tell you, in in a unique way, the pandemic has reminded us that a virtual relationship is better than no relationship. And it has taught us that a virtual relationship is better than a relationship with the criminal justice system. And think of it, we, we FaceTime our kids, our grandkids virtually, and we would not give up that virtual relationship for the world. As a matter of fact, I thank God that I'm able to say that the most transformational relationship I have today is a virtual relationship. I have a virtual relationship with someone I have never met physically, someone I've never seen with my eyes, I have a virtual relationship with someone I've never seen in the flesh. His name is Jesus. And that virtual relationship means more to me than anything else in this world. And it's virtual. That virtual relationship shapes my conduct and my choices. And I don't want to do anything to disappoint my divine mentor. (laughs) my Savior. And sometimes when I bow my head and I close my eyes to pray, I do feel like a blind woman waiting on the arrival of her lover. I cannot see his face, but I can sense his presence and I can hear his voice. Oh, but one day Revelation 22 foretells me that that relationship will transform from a virtual relationship to a relationship in the flesh. Because one of the great promises in the Bible says that one day we shall see his face. Today I invite you to please pray for me and my work with the Dream Academy as we mentor and tutor these thousands of children in the name of Christ. From my work over the past 22 years, I must tell you our nation and yes, our church, we are facing, I believe, the greatest existential threat of our history. You see, we have entered a post-paper era. And for thousands of years, the printed page used to be, I said used to be, the technology we use to store information and communicate information. That is no longer how we store and communicate information in a post-paper era. 
We are also seeing right before our very eyes the demise of reading from printed pages. Young people today read from a printed page an average of five to ten minutes a day. They watch images and video on devices an average of three to seven hours a day. Their minds have been completely rewired. Last year, 80% of American households did not buy one book. And for young people and modern minds, images and video are now their first language. Think of it. Your kids, grandkids, before they could walk, talk, or eat on their own, they're being communicated with through images and video more than your spoken words or their mama or daddy's spoken words. And their minds have been rewired. Images and video are now their first language and their core language. And now images and video have become, this is one of the most important things I'm going to say today, images and video have become a more powerful communication tool than the spoken word or the written word. Take the Gettysburg Address and take Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Dr. King's speech will resonate for generations precisely because it was caught on video. If you had to go to a book, a printed page, every time you wanted to experience or share Dr. King's speech, it would not have the same impact that it does today. Or get the most eloquent speaker alive to write or, or to, to prepare the most dynamic oral presentation and get the most prolific writer alive to write the most prolific, unbelievable article about what happened to George Floyd on that corner in Minneapolis, it would have never had the same impact that those nine minutes and 32 seconds of video. And I find no joy in sharing with you that images and video are now a more powerful communication tool than the spoken word or the written word. And I find no joy in announcing to you as a consequence, the Bible as we know it, you know that leather book engraved with your name, filled with God's thoughts and words on printed pages. That Bible as you know it, that you humbly, you know, you walked with it as your companion, that you humbly submitted to its words with reverence and authority. The Bible as a book on printed pages is not only going away, for this new generation, it has already gone away. And with the demise of reading and reading from printed pages, the ramifications of that reality for a church like our own 
whose passion and business model, if you will, has been based on sharing from the printed page because of this sense of reverence and authority of this book in your hand that you went before a court of law and put your hand on it and said, I swear to tell the truth. What are you going to do? Put your hand on an iPad? There is no doubt in my mind we as a church are entering a murky future, a future that our church leaders are not prepared for. I believe there's a direct correlation between the reality I've just articulated to you and another reality that has quietly overtaken us. According to a Bonner research study, now remember what I'm saying to you, there is a direct correlation between the demise of the book on printed pages with God's word and what I'm about to share with you at a Barna research study between the years 2000 and the year 2020, it dropped from 45% to 25%. The amount of Americans who now say they are practicing Christians, it is now 25 You are among 25% of Americans who now say they are practicing Christians. Is it any wonder in North America, we are not growing as a church, the Adventist church, because guess what? We, We have built our approach on winning people who already have a reverence for Scripture. And that reverence for Scripture causes them to say, yes, we will join. Well, we were not able to grow our church even by one member per church per year last year or the year before. With all our billions and all our buildings and yet we are not able to grow by even one member per church per year. Now, the words of God have not gone away. Hallelujah, somebody. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. But the medium, the technology through which we share those words has changed. I believe we're going to have to find ways to communicate the mystery of God's word and the truth of God's character, we're going to have to do that in a way that speaks to a video-driven, image-driven world. The reason I call it the most grave existential threat for this country is because I believe, uh, I'm going to be prayerful as I say to you here, I remember coming back from For 25 years, I traveled with Billy Graham. We were coming back from Russia, his first crusade in Russia. And Mr. Graham said to me, Wentley, you know, America has never really been a Christian nation. And then he said, and more more than America was meant to be a Christian nation, it was meant to be a nation of Christians of Jews, of Muslims, where people could worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. What he was saying is only a person can be a Christian. (laughs) 
You can't baptize an Amco shop or a Burger King franchise. You see, without the principles found in the Word of God, barely incul- and I say barely inculcated in the psyche of the American consciousness, this nation totters on the edge of chaos and collapse. You know that old hymn that says, something within me that holdeth the reins? Without the word of God woven into the fabric and conscience of American society, there is nothing within this country that keeps us from chaos. Nothing in our society to keep us back from collapse. I believe only the mysteries in God's word can provide us the answers we need and the blueprint to follow that will put us along the path of a peaceable society and a beloved community. Now as we live our lives, each and every one of us must confront the nagging perpetual mysteries of life. Life is a mystery. It is a mystery within a mystery. And as an academic, I unequivocally believe in the rigors of scientific probing and discovery. But yet I am lucid and logical enough to admit that there are times even when science falters and leaves us without corroboration and confirmation. And in those moments we may need to grasp with our imaginations, which that's what faith is, to grasp with your imagination what your intellect cannot comprehend nor defend. Take the scientific phenomenon of dark matter. Have you ever heard of that? Scientists tell us dark matter is the energy, dark energy that makes up 95% of this universe. And the reason it is called dark matter and dark energy is because scientists don't know what it is or where it comes from. It is a mystery. And so I'm I'm clear-eyed and reasoned enough to admit that there are times when scientists must climb down off of the ledge of limbo and accept or even believe in phenomena that they now, with their finite limitations, cannot prove. I have found in life it takes common sense to believe logic, but it's going to take faith to take God at his word. Logic cannot and does not always explain the intractable mysteries of life. Like many of you in my youth, I chose to believe in believing. Why? Because for me, disbelief did not give me enough of a solid intellectual framework with which to understand, explain, or unravel the most enduring mysteries of life. (laughs) Disbelief is a really poor framework to try to grapple with the mysteries of life. For me, I want you to know there are enduring mysteries that are profound and numerous. And one such mystery is the presence 
of evil in the world. It is a confounding mystery. I'm an avid student of World War II. I have watched more World War II documentaries than anyone in this room. In part because I am unable to hide my perplexity. My perplexity over how 60 million people could die in five to six years on the most so-called civilized continent of the earth. How is that possible? I watch those documentaries because I am bewildered by the inability of Germany's combined scientific, philosophical, theological, and engineering minds to confront effectively the mystery of evil. It is clear to me that science cannot explain nor confront successfully the mystery of evil. It was Albert Einstein, a man with a gifted scientific mind, who once said, the world is a dangerous place to live, not so much because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. (laughs) His inference left you with a question, which is worse, people who are evil or people who do nothing about evil? Which is more evil, people who are evil or people who are complicit with evil while calling themselves good? Einstein also said, whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted with important matters. Need I say White House? Whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted with important matters. One of the rich friendships I have enjoyed in my life was with a man by the name of Dr. Gardner Taylor, now deceased. He was pastor emeritus of the Concord Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. One day he took a train to Princeton, New Jersey to spend a few hours with Albert Einstein at his home. They talked together about philosophy and theology. And he said he he saw Einstein as a conflicted believer. Einstein himself once said, I am not an atheist. The human mind, no matter how highly trained, cannot grasp the universe. We see, he said, a universe marvelously arranged, obeying certain laws, but we understand the laws only dimly. Our limited minds cannot grasp the mysterious force that sway the constellations. He also said, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are mere details. (laughs) One of Einstein's thoughts about God, I really love this one. I cherish this one. He once said, God is subtle, but he is not malicious. That's a revelation from heaven. Your God is not malicious. Hallelujah. And like all of us, all his life, Einstein grappled with the enduring mysteries of life. You know, the why of evil, 
the why of human suffering, the why of human misery and pain. As a matter of fact, about a month before his assassination, Robert F. Kennedy opined about the mystery of human suffering. Kennedy was being interviewed by the British television personality David Frost. And toward the end of the interview, Frost asked, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like the first line of your obituary to say? Kennedy's reply was, well, maybe something about the fact that I made some contribution either to my country or to those who were less well off. I think again, he said, back to what Camus wrote about the fact that perhaps this world is a world in which children suffer, but we can lessen the number of suffering children. And if you do not do this, then you will not achieve your destiny. As I've wrestled, my friends, with the greatest mysteries of life, I want to tell you for just the final moments I have about what I call the greatest mystery of all mysteries. To me, that mystery is the mystery of love expressed in substitutionary suffering and sacrifice. Love expressed in substitutionary suffering and sacrifice. The book of Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was wounded for me. He was bruised for my iniquities. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement of your peace was upon him. And with his stripes, you are made whole. This mystery, it is a mystery of a suffering servant. The the teaching of a suffering Messiah was unimaginable to the Jewish people of Christ's day. But this enduring mystery of a God who expresses his personality and his character through substitutionary suffering and sacrifice, that God has expressed his love to you this way that he allowed his son to die for you as a substitute to spare you eternal shame, eternal damnation and death. The love of God expressing itself in substitutionary suffering for your peace and well-being. I admit to you When I think of God's love expressed in substitutionary suffering and sacrifice, I am dumbfounded and enthralled, uh, for I do not understand such love. I, I do not understand such reckless abandonment of divine self interest. I do not understand such calculated disregard by Jesus for his own life just to rescue the perishing. I do not understand such abasement of self and the, and the deliberate, premeditated embrace of horrors for me. Just to save me. To save those who are unfit and unworthy. I do not understand 
love expressed in substitutionary suffering and sacrifice so that I can be rescued, redeemed, and restored. We have heard of subjects giving their lives for their kings, but we don't hear of kings giving their lives for their subjects. And this news of a righteous king who chose to be wounded, who chose on sinner's behalf to wear the robe of scandal, who chose to die for those worthy of only dishonor and disrepute, who chose to die for sinners mired in degradation and disgrace, who chose, chose, and by the way, I want you to know love is a choice. God gave me my own definition of love. Love is when you choose to be at your best when the other person is not at their best. Love is when what you want is never important and what the other person needs is always more important and paramount. And by the way, that's how God loves us. He was at his best when we were not at our best. When what he wanted, peace in his universe, what we needed was more important than what he wanted. And he chose to die so we may be rescued, redeemed, and restored. And I don't understand that kind of love. It's a mystery to me. It is an enduring mystery. Love that would throw itself in harm's way to rescue the foolish, to rescue the incorrigible. (laughs) It is an enduring mystery. Now there are those who believe that to introduce the gospel today to modern minds, that it would be more appropriate to skip over this narrative of suffering. And sacrifice. They believe the subject of suffering is not a popular one. You know, well, think about it. What evangelist starts his crusade with a sermon based on all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution? None of us are immune to suffering, but if you keep living, you're going to suffer. I think it was Edward Tutson who once said, if you succeed without suffering, it is because someone else has suffered before you. And if you suffer without succeeding, it is so that someone else may succeed after you. Too many believe if you want to persuade people of the benefits and blessings of Christianity today, that it would make more sense to hold up a gospel of wealth and prosperity or a gospel of health and healing or a gospel of wonders and miracles or a gospel, a a social gospel or a liberation gospel or a prosperity gospel. But here Isaiah does not shun the inferences of pain and sacrifice. He makes no apologies what our faith is based upon and that this kind of love shines brightest in adversity. Instead, he holds up before us the lamb before Sherez, the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. We live in a modern world where the church has seen what I call temporal successes preaching a sanitized gospel. 
uh, preaching a suffering-free gospel. Uh, We have focused on peripherals. We've neglected this truth that Christ suffered and bled so that we may be rescued, redeemed, and restored. Uh, And allow me to share something important God has taught me. God has shown me that a gospel of rescue without redemption is an incomplete gospel. And a gospel of redemption without restoration is also an incomplete gospel. The complete good news of the gospel is that Jesus suffered and bled and died and was risen to rescue you from the power of sin and redeem you from the penalty of sin. But it, not, it is not to stop there. He died also to restore you into the likeness, image, and character of God. I call this a trinity of divine purpose to rescue, redeem, and restore. I'm getting a little too excited. I'm preaching like I'm in my own home church this morning. But this is the complete gospel that because of God's love expressed through substitutionary suffering and sacrifice that we may become partakers of the divine nature. And that we may resemble, reflect, and reveal the character of Christ. All day. Every day. No excuses. Even today, you can start that process in your own life right now. With a decision to follow Christ. Can I tell you, if you're an angry Christian, you've got some growing to do. Uh, if you're a touchy, how can I say this? If you are just a, t- if you're a touchy Christian, you know, some Christians, all, all it takes is a little provocation. You say the wrong thing with the wrong attitude or the wrong, uh, I'll recommend to you something. I, I, I've done it before. I've gone to, you know, the Verizon store where you have to wait and then, you know, and, and you can get a little frustrating. But I walk up to, when I get to the lady, I say, you know something? You're a blessed lady. She said, why? I said, you're about to serve someone. No matter what you say or do, they will never be angry with you. Of course, when you put that kind of pressure on yourself, you got to live up to it. But if you're a Christian who's easily annoyed, you've got some growing to do. Or if you're easily frustrated, Can I tell you that the purpose for our probation is character growth. The years we have been given by God are for growth. I found that too many who don't want to be with him, I found many who want to be with him don't want to be like him. And through eternity we will be learning and growing. Can I tell you what the servant of God says before I leave? And by the way, please, for your own blessing, read the writings of Ellen White. Let me tell you why. There is no writer in the history of planet Earth who has had more to say 
with as much depth and clarity about the character of God than Ellen White. It is a forgotten Advent theological contribution. We have neglected putting this message of God's character forward. There is no, there's no writer in the history, Max Lucado, I don't care, nobody has the insights on God's character. Listen to what she says. She says, the faith that does not produce and reveal the fruit of Christ-likeness is a false faith. She also says that if the truth you believe do not transform your character, all the truths you believe are of no value to you. The Sabbath has no value to you if it doesn't transform your character. You know the word of God. John 15, 13 as I close. Greater love hath no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. The mystery of substitutionary suffering and sacrifice. As I close on January 23rd, 1943, in the middle of World War II, a civilian ship used by the Navy was carrying 900 U.S. servicemen to Europe in the fight against Nazi tyranny in Nazi Germany. Their first stop was to be Greenland. The Coast Guard told the ship's captain he had to be extra careful because sonar had detected a German U-boat submarine in the area. The captain ordered everyone on board to sleep in their clothes and to keep their life jackets on. Sadly, many of the soldiers disregarded the order because they said with the life jackets on, it made them too uncomfortable. At about 1 a.m. in the dark of night on February the 3rd, 1943, the German submarine U-boat 223 spotted the Dorchester, that ship carrying the U.S. troops. Quietly, the submarine lay in wait to strike, and just when the Dorchester was most vulnerable, the German submarine went in for the kill. In the icy cold waters of the North Atlantic, the submarine launched a torpedo, and in moments, the Dorchester was hit. The torpedo knocked out the ship's electrical system, leaving the ship completely dark. Many of the soldiers who were trapped below its decks never made it up. And in all the panic and confusion, I got to tell you, I've sung for many memorial services in my life. But this service I sang for touched me. In all the panic of, and confusion, it, this memorial service was for four men who were on that ship. There were four Navy chaplains who brought calm to the men. Those four Navy chaplains stayed on the ship organizing an orderly evacuation. They aided and guided wounded men to safety. And as the men prepared to leave the ship, those four 
chaplains were handing them their life jackets. Until to their horror and to their dismay, they soon realized they had run out of life jackets. And in that moment, something extraordinary happened. Those four chaplains took off their life jackets and gave it to soldiers who needed one. Those four chaplains from different faiths, two Protestants, one Catholic and a Jewish rabbi, that night those four chaplains went down with the ship into those icy waters off of Newfoundland. Well, one of the 200 men who survived who had been given a life jacket, he said, as I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high and the ship slid under the water. He said, the last thing we saw were those four chaplains. They were up there praying for the safety of the men. Everyone saw those four chaplains on that sinking ship. Their arms were linked together. They were praying and singing hymns as the ship went down into that icy sea. Substitutionary suffering and sacrifice. It is a mystery. And so my mind often goes to that hill called Mount Calvary where my Jesus took off his life jacket. My Jesus on that cruel cross took off his life jacket, gave it to me, gave it to you, expressed his love through substitutionary suffering. Often I, when I think of the cross, I, I ask myself the same question every time. Jesus did that for me? He did that for me? 